The scripture today is from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth and with it said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. When I dream, I dream about a church that's so consumed, so on fire by the power and love of God that the blaze spreads. It spreads to our families and our communities, our coworkers, our friends, our classmates. A church that is so desperately in love with Christ that we hold nothing back. That at each moment, we offer ourselves fully to the will of God in such a way that as an act of faith, we believe that God will transform the world through the church. I dream about a church that's on fire for Jesus Christ. That's the kind of church that I want to serve. That's the kind of church that I want to help lead, and my guess is that's the kind of church you want to be a part of as well. A church that sets the world ablaze with the love, the grace, the power of God and Jesus Christ. The amazing thing to me is to be that kind of church, that church on fire, requires a commitment to really only three things. Now, it's a radical commitment, but only three things. The first is a commitment to radical spirituality. Essentially, the transformation of the entirety of our lives into a passionate worship of God. The second thing is a commitment to radical hospitality. And by that, I mean the radical connection, that authentic connection between human beings where we take off our masks and we are honest with one another. We show one another our faults and our failures. We learn together. We're healed together. We grow together. To be the church on fire means we are possessed by radical spirituality. We are possessed by radical hospitality. And it means that we are possessed by a radical desire to give and go. To accept the mantle of Christ's mission on our lives to transform the world. That's it. To love God desperately, to love one another desperately, to carry out our mission in a radical way. That's what it means to be the church on fire. And over the course of the next few weeks, as we enter the season of Pentecost, the season of the birth of the church, we're going to explore each of these elements. 
beginning today with radical spirituality. At the heart of radical spirituality, the very heartbeat of it is a passionate worship. Not just worship, passionate worship. So let's talk about passion for just a second. What are you passionate about? I want to tell you something I'm passionate about. I grew up in the hills of East Tennessee, less than an hour away from Knoxville. That's where the University of Tennessee is. And while I was in high school, Peyton Manning was the quarterback at the University of Tennessee. If you don't know who Peyton Manning is, he must be in the conversation for the best quarterback in history. And it wasn't simply that he won titles, though he did, or that he holds records, though he does. He revolutionized the game. He transformed it. It'll never be the same again. I loved, I loved watching that guy on Saturday afternoons. And I discovered that as I enjoyed watching Peyton Manning play for the University of Tennessee, it wasn't just UT I was rooting for. I was rooting for anybody across the Southeastern Conference. What is that? It's a, it's a grouping of college football teams, 14 of them. You know, in all of college football, what used to be called Division One, the top tier of college football, in all of college football, there are 130 teams at the top level. 14 of them, roughly 10%, are in the Southeastern Conference. And yet, in the last 15 years, the Southeastern Conference has won 10 out of 15 national championships. Adding to my joy and pleasure is that while I mentioned I grew up in Tennessee, I was actually born in Ohio. I don't remember much of living there. We moved when I was quite young. But my older siblings remember it. The rest of my family, rabid Ohio State fans. Ohio State is right now the best team in the Big Ten, another conference. It's brought me no small amount of joy over the recent years to watch the SEC dominate the Big Ten. Some of you are with me right now because you're also passionate about college football, but others of you couldn't care less. What are you passionate about? We have people in our congregation who are passionate about sewing and knitting. We have people who are passionate about gardening. We have people who are passionate about music. My administrative assistant, Jen Schaup, is passionate about hiking. The talented Reverend Monica Reynolds is passionate about running. Not because anybody is chasing her. She just likes to run, which I understand. She needs to be in good shape because it takes her like 134 steps just to get to her bathroom. She's short. What are you passionate about? At the heart of radical spirituality is passionate worship. Passionate worship takes place not simply when we are gathered together. It takes place in our daily prayer times. It takes place each day as we read the scriptures. It takes place as we're driving down the road and we're listening to music and we engage in an impromptu worship session with God. Worship takes place rightfully in each moment of our lives because when we engage in any moment of devotion, what we are doing is we're acknowledging our dependence, our utter dependence on God. And yes, of course, we also worship when we gather together as this community of believers in this moment. We should be passionate, passionate about worship. What I find to be sad, though, is that Oftentimes, instead of being passionate about worship, particularly when it comes to our gathered worship, that sometimes we feel like it's God's divine call on our lives to become worship critics. The music was too loud. The 
sermon was too long. The jokes weren't funny. Why do they keep it so cold in there? And listen, if you think, if you think that I'm being critical of you for being a worship critic, you need to know this. There are no group, there's no group of people in this world more critical of worship than pastors. I just don't know when it happened. When we started to engage in worship and focus on those things that were wrong rather than focusing on the one who is always right and always righteous. Sometimes I feel as if our worship is not nearly as passionate as it should be, but, but, you know who gets it? Is my friend Karen. Karen attends worship here at Ebenezer Church. She's the first one to begin a chorus of amens, a round of applause when the church has accomplished some missional effort together. If you ever watch my friend Karen worship, what you would see is someone absolutely engrossed in singing praise to God. I'm sure she's grateful that other people are around, but it wouldn't matter because what she's doing in that moment is simply communicating to God the depth of her love for God. That's what worship is. It comes from these two words, worth and ship. It is literally the method of conveyance by which we tell God how much God is worth to us. Karen gets it. Karen engages in passionate, passionate worship. What keeps us from being passionate in our worship? I'm not talking about the excuses because we all, we all have them and many of them are valid. I'm really busy or, uh, I, I just am thinking about something else right now, but I believe, I deeply believe that one of the reasons that we often don't engage in passionate worship is simply because we don't understand what happens in worship. And to that end, I want to explore today's scripture passage with you. If you've got your Bibles, Grab them and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8 over the next few moments. And as we do so, we're going to discover four things, four beautiful, blessed things that occur in the midst of passionate worship. Look with me in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots of the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. Here's the first thing that happens in passionate worship. We encounter God. It isn't just that Isaiah encounters God in Isaiah chapter 6. No, there is a promise, several promises throughout Scripture that we encounter God in passionate worship. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I shall be in the midst of them. Psalm 22 tells us that God inhabits the praises of God's people. It's the promise of Scripture that when we worship, we will encounter God. Think about what that means for a moment. 
Have you ever stood next to the ocean? Felt the awe-inspiring sense of how small you are? And thought about the fact that your God created not only the intricacies of our human bodies, but the grand ocean itself. I just, on this thought, want to show you a couple of pictures to put this in perspective. This is a picture of the salt cave in Mexico. These little red things you see on the screen, those are human beings walking through the salt cave. God made that. It's stunning. God made it. Far before Superman came up with his ice cave, God created this. Look at this. This is the interplay between a volcanic eruption and a lightning storm in Iceland. It's artistry. This is on the coast of the Maldives. It's phytoplankton at night firing off and lighting up the tide itself. I show you these pictures not just because they're beautiful, though they are, but to help us understand the majesty, the beauty of a God who could create acts of art like this by simply speaking them into existence. God spoke. And these things came into being to speak nothing of the beauty of the human form. The radiant love of God on the cross. The power and possibility that comes out of the empty tomb. In worship, we encounter the great and living God. But that's not all. Look in verse 5 with me. Isaiah said, Woe is me. I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When we come face to face with God, when we encounter God in passionate worship, one of the things that's going to happen is that we're going to see our own sin. And I can tell you from personal experience, it's uncomfortable to have our hearts peeled back, to stare at our true selves, our true intentions. But light reveals darkness. And if we look at what comes next, we'll begin to understand the magnitude and the importance of seeing our sin because God does not reveal our sin in order to condemn us. God reveals our sin in order to heal us. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. God wants to heal us. God sees the brokenness that dwells inside of us, that fractures our relationship, that keeps us from being all that God ever dreamed we could be. And God wants to heal it, to regenerate us, to make us clean again. And God alone can do it. 
Our acts of piety, those kind things that we do to help us get to sleep at night, they can't save us. Only God can. And God longs to. Why? Because God loves us desperately. And because God wants us to have purpose. Look at verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. Four things happen. Four things happen in passionate worship. In passionate worship, we encounter God. In passionate worship, we see our sin and we are healed from it. And in passionate worship, we hear the call of our gods. We find God. We find our purpose. This is what happens in passionate worship. We were created to do it. Created for the passionate worship of our God. It is our natural state and the heart of radical spirituality. And it's not because God needs our worship. God doesn't need anything. We need it. We need to be reminded of the magnificence of God because it reminds us that there is nothing I'm going to encounter in my life or you in yours that God can't handle. We need to see our sin so we can be healed from our sin and we need purpose. We need a reason for being so God gives it to us. Mine is to be a husband and a father and a pastor. Just a few moments ago, we heard about Pastor Monica's call to be engaged in the chaplain corps. What is your call? What's the call of the living God on your life? If you don't know, remember, God speaks to us in passionate worship. Now, just one final thought about this passage. Look back with me at verse 4. As the seraphim were worshiping God, the Bible tells us this is what happened. The pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. What does that mean? It means that when the seraphs worship God, the doors of heaven shook. That's the image of passionate worship. That when we worship God in spirit and in truth, when we worship God in each moment from our morning devotions, our daily prayers, when we worship God as a gathered or distributed church, our praises shake the doors of heaven. So what are you passionate about? Are you ready to fall desperately into the arms of a God who loves you desperately? 
Are you ready to be set ablaze in such a way that your life is consumed by the one who loves you most? And in turn, for your families, classmates, co-workers, neighbors, friends, to be set on fire for Christ, ablaze with His love and power. If you are, would you pray with me? Holy God, we give you thanks for the gift that is you and for your call on our lives to be transformed in perpetual acts of worship, lives filled with passionate worship. Lord, we want to encounter you Forgive us for the times that we have taken you for granted, that we fail to see the true beauty and majesty that is you. Forgive us. Lord, we all have sin in our lives, all of us. That sin can separate us from you. It can fracture our relationships. And perhaps there are some people engaging in our worship service today that have never once asked your forgiveness for their sins but who long to be connected to the source of love and power and light. God, may this be the day. This be the day that they claim your forgiveness through a simple prayer like, Father, I've sinned against heaven, against others, against myself, and I can't make it better. Forgive me. Today is the day that I claim you as my Savior. I claim you as my Lord. And will spend all of my days worshiping you. God, we thank you that in worship we encounter you. In worship, our sin is revealed and healed. But God, we also thank you that As we stare at you, our lives find purpose. Help us to be those who are willing to say, as Isaiah did, here I am. Send me. In Jesus' name, amen.